Okay, this is what's this Wesley stuff about for August the 30th. Uh, so um, we're followers of Jesus. That's a thing we want to make. That in Wesley is a faithful guide or a good guide. I want to talk about his education and experience. Uh, he was classically trained at a boarding school uh, in London and then went to Oxford where he uh, got his um, undergraduate degree and master's degree. Uh, and I talked a little bit last week and was ordained to the priesthood, uh, the Anglican Church. After a while, when he graduated uh, with his master's degree, he was made a teaching fellow um, at Lincoln College. Now, <clears throat> Oxford is a conglomeration of colleges. Um, C.S. Lewis went to Magdalen College. Wesley went to Christ Church. Others have gone to Lincoln College. It's a conglomeration of, of universities under the Oxford uh, banner. And Wesley became a teaching fellow after he got his master's degree and was uh, responsible for training students in Greek, Hebrew, and in logic. I think I told you last week, he wrote a textbook on logic that was used at Oxford. Uh, you can still find it. It's in print. Uh, Amazon's got it. does some of these ancient reprints. Yeah, <clears throat> ancient reprints. Um, but, but what was interesting, this is going to play really importantly later because he's a teaching fellow and he's ordained to the priesthood, but to no specific parish. And this plays into his, what you would call his national ministry in England when people tried to shut him down because he was in their parish. Well, his argument is, I was never assigned to any parish. I'm an ordained priest with the Church of England. And so I just have, the world is my parish. That's his kind of famous statement. The world is my parish. I have another, here's a handout if you'd like one. Here's one. The, yeah, the world is my parish. So his educational experience um, in that regard. And so I've got a little video here. We'll just look at just for a second that we did about his um, uh, ministry. This is a picture here of uh, Christ Church. Uh, this is kind of a panoramic view of the outside of it. So we went to school. And then we said last week, this is the Harry Potter dining room. <clears throat> when I walked in, I go, wait a minute. <clears throat> this looks familiar. But Christ Church is a very uh, uh, prestigious university in there, and they, that's where they filmed Harry Potter in the, uh, the uh, dining room. Uh, <clears throat> at the very end of there, Henry VIII is the one that really got the funding for Christ Church, so he's, his picture is notoriously there at the top, uh, the most uh, obvious. Um, <clears throat> in Christ Church, <clears throat> the, the university also has a cathedral, uh, which students would go to chapel, and <clears throat> they would preach, and and this is a, a, a stone in the floor there of Christchurch Cathedral commemorating that John and Charles were both ordained to the ministry of the Church of England, became leaders of the Methodist Church there at Christchurch. Here's a pulpit. In Christ. This guy's reading prayers when we were there, and John Wesley preached from this pulpit. And so we were able to get right up by it and touch it. <laughs> and, uh, but that's, that, that's an actual pulpit there still at the church. Uh, I thought I'd give you just a little bit uh, on this. And so far it's worked. So we will not uh, try to destroy our 
Hi, Cliff Sanders here again with the School of Western Studies. We're on location here in Oxford in front of Christ Church College and Cathedral. This is the university that John Wesley went to as he studied for the priesthood. He came here, and a few years later, his brother Charles. This is again the location of this church, or this college called Christ Church, which is one of the many uh, schools here at Oxford, that the Methodist small group uh, ministry called the Holy Club found its beginning. Also in the cathedral here is the same church that John Wesley was ordained to the priesthood. And so this particular university with its cathedral has a really a significant and important part in the life, education, and ministry of John Wesley. As you can tell, it's a beautiful building here with the school as well as the cathedral. And so it's uh, part of the Wesley heritage to visit this place. Uh, Wesley had been a little bit less interested in his Christian life before that in his undergraduate work and tells that his kind of renewal or his development to being a fully devoted follower of Jesus was here at Christ Church in his work with his brother George Whitfield in the small group ministry. I would refer you to three books that should be on your notes here in Wesley's education as theological well as development. We'll come back to it. Don't the first book just would be Holy Living and Holy Dying by Jeremy Taylor. This was the book that Wesley read that convinced him that there was no such thing as a half-Christian. The second book would be Thomas Aquinas and the Imitation of Christ. This book played a major role in his life, and it may have been some interest to you that even after Wesley read it and was so affected by it, he wrote his own edition, sort of a compendium called The Christian Pattern, in which he took many of Aquinas' ideas and modified them uh, for his own audience. Then the third book that he was so affected by was by William Laws, a series called To a Holy and Devout Life. While Wesley had been a student here at Christ Church and in the ensuing ministry, William Law. Okay. So this book by, by Akempis on the imitation of Christ convinced Wesley that religion was an inward matter. Couldn't be reduced to simp couldn't be reduced to behaviors, couldn't be reduced to activities. It had to be a matter of internal matter. So that was really important. Uh, another book here by Henry Skurgall is called The Life of God in the Soul of Man. The Life of God in the Soul of Man. By the way, that book is still available. You can still get it. It was written in the 1500s. Uh, <clears throat> this book was a book that was passed around a lot when Wesley was at Oxford in a little group called the Holy Club. At Oxford, Charles, John, a couple other guys, people you know, and George Whitfield, have heard of him, the great preacher of England. Uh, you know, <clears throat> Whitfield was converted under Methodist work and became known as one of the great preachers. In fact, he made seven trips to the United States. And when he preached, he would preach to 10,000 people. Benjamin Franklin said he could hear him 500 yards away like he was right there. 
And so Whitfield is part of this group and it's called the Holy Club. They're, they're, they're students who are taking their religion seriously. Now, the other students at Oxford thought, didn't think much of it. In fact, they're the ones who called them the Holy Club. It was not a compliment. It wasn't something they called themselves. In fact, the people at Oxford called them Bible moths because they were constantly reading the Bible. Or super irrigation men, meaning they were going too far in their religion. And so they called it the Holy Club. And so in the Holy Club with John Wesley and Charles and, and uh, George Whitfield and others, this book was passed around and they read it. George Whitfield records that he did not know religion until he read this book. And he attributes this book, The Life of God and the Soul of Man, to actually his conversion from being a Church of England person to being an actual follower of Jesus. This book has had tremendous impact on George, uh, West, uh, John Wesley, uh, George Whitfield, Charles. In fact, in Wesley's writings, uh, his uh, favorite definition of the Christian life, if you, when, when Wesley would say, what's his favorite definition? He, he really had two. One of them was out of Galatians 5, 6. Nothing matters but faith working through love. Faith working through love. Galatians 5, 6, that's what Paul says. For neither circumcision nor uncircumcision makes any difference at all, but faith working through love. We'll come back to that because Wesley believed the reformers went too far. We talked a little bit about that last week. Or maybe, I'm training our staff also, so I'm getting confused where I was when I said this. Anyway, um, but his other favorite definition of the Christian life was the life of God in the soul of man. Think about that. I, I could tell you briefly that when I was in seminary, I'd been ordained for eight years. I'd pastored a church of a constituency of a thousand people. And when I read that definition, it rattled me to the bottom of my feet. And one of the most important events in my entire life was when I began to meditate and think about this. Wait a minute. The Christian life is the life of God and the soul of of a human being. That is more than signing a card, praying a prayer, and just going to church. That's what others might call a, a, just a takeover <laughs> to where that life. So <clears throat> Skorgal's book really plays an important role in Whitfield's life, in uh, John and Charles Wesley's life, and in the revival, they recommend all that. So again, I, I recommend it. I, there's a couple of books I would, one is The Rise and Progress of Religion in the Soul by Philip Doddridge. These are all written in the 16th century. The Rise and Progress of Religion in the Soul by Philip Doddridge. And uh, the, Life of, uh, the Rise and Progress of Religion in the Soul by Philip Doddridge. And The Life of God and the Soul of Man by Henry Scorgall. These are, they're just books that I go back to all the time. They're on my desk for my devotional time. Scorgall's book or Doddridge's book is falling apart. I'm going to have to go get it rebound or something because I've got notes and I don't want to have to go get another book. But it, incredible. Third book, <clears throat> third book, William Law. Uh, his uh, <clears throat> a book I read <clears throat> years and years ago called A Serious Call to a Holy and Devout Life. A Serious Call to a Holy and Devout Life. Uh, and he also wrote a book called Christian Perfection. He wrote a book called The Spirit of Love. He, he was a, 
a, a powerful influence in English religion for some time. Um, and Wesley kind of attached to him for a good, good bit of time. And, and this uh, matter, let me just read you right here. After reading this book, he wrote this in his journal. I was convinced more than ever of the absolute impossibility of being half a Christian. And I determined through his grace to be all devoted to God, to give him all my soul, my body, and my substance. This book had that kind of an effect on it. There's no half Christian here. You're either in or you're out. You're all in or you're not in. And this idea of the Christian life, um, law became a little more mystical over time. And Wesley, we'll talk about it later, when Wesley comes to understand that you're made right with God by faith. It may seem strange to you, but the Church of England had kind of gotten it reversed, that you cleaned your life up. This was the Church of England's idea. You kind of cleaned your life up by proving that you were serious, and then you became a Christian. Law got kind of mystical at some point, uh, and Wesley really took him to task that law had never told him about being made right with God by faith and by faith alone in the blood of Jesus. Uh, so, so they had a parting, uh, and I can share with you some of the matters there, but uh, he'll, it'll suffice to say that William Law's works helped him see to be a serious Christian. And, and William Law's works have been, been republished. Uh, last one, <clears throat> the last book, uh, Jeremy Taylor. Um, <clears throat> Again, you took this book. All these books are, you know, it's, it's a testimony to a book that when it's 500 years old, they're still printing it. <laughs> you know, uh, I tell most of my students at the college, when I, I don't read anybody unless they're dead. <laughs> I really don't. I don't read popular writers much. I mean, maybe I do. I don't know. I'm trying to think if there's anybody in my library, my Kindle. I don't think so. I read dead people. I want to make sure they've lived their lives. They've passed the test. And they've been a serious follower of Jesus. Jeremy Taylor's book called Rules for Holy Living and Holy Dying. Rules for Holy Living. What's well, really rules and exercises for holy living and holy dying. Yeah. I think I, I, sh I should have had this on here for you. I know. Uh, this book, this book, its effect had was one, obviously, you know, holy living and holy dying, that one's life was lived uh, in, in all times in, oh, one more, uh, thank you, Liz, that, that one, one lived their life in light of getting ready to die. Uh, you think, well, that sounds morbid, you know, but um, it's a fact that we're all going to, and it's a fact as one person said that a lot of people do more planning for their vacation than they do for their death, uh, you know, and being prepared. And so Wesley reads this and he, here's what he wrote. He said, what he recognized here was he was exceedingly affected by this, by the matter of the purity of intention. That purity of intention was what was critical in one's life. You may note again that all these book works kept bringing Wesley to this idea of the inwardness, the idea of inward religion, not being satisfied with just behavioral kinds of things, 
but inwardly understanding that it's my intention, my heart, uh, which is actually historic Orthodox Christian teaching. It's not just be good. You know, I, I'd said in my Sunday school class and around here before, you know, that Jesus didn't come to make bad people good. If making bad people good, there are several religious practices that do that. Several. There are some philosophical approaches to life that make bad people good. But Wesley understood, and this comes from a great British evangelist, Leonard Ravenhill, that Jesus didn't come to make bad people good. He came to make dead people alive. People are dead in their trespasses and sin, separated from the source of life. That's why Jesus said in John 10, 10, I've come that you might have forgiveness. It's not what he says. I've come that you might have life. So this understanding of purity of intention. Now what this did, among some of these others, and we'll go into more detail, but this really began in these theological influences to cause Wesley to, to form his understanding of sin. He saw sin as an inward thing before it ever became an outward thing. And I would say to you that, that Wesley would never teach that you try to manage your behavior. You try to go back to the source, the heart, the intention. It wasn't behavioral management. Dallas Willard calls it sometimes sin management. You know, like, like I, I, I really want to do this, but I've managed my life in such a way that I don't do it. Um, my, my illustration for this, we'll probably come back to it, is in, uh, in uh, the Odyssey, Seeking for the Golden Fleece. Great epic poem where they're going after the Golden Fleece. You may remember that Ulysses, the first group that tried to go, knew they had to go by an island that had these beautiful singers, siren singers, that were beautiful women, but they were bird-like and, you know, all that mythology stuff. But they would go by the, the island, and the danger was that, the, that the, the sailors would hear the siren song so much, they would jump out of the boat and go to the, go to the shore and then crash the boat, and then they'd get eaten. And so Ulysses decided that what he would do for his, soul, for his sailors was to put wax in their ears so they couldn't hear it. And then he had himself tied to the mast with ropes because he wanted to hear it, but he didn't want to do that. And so he tied them and he said, do not let me go whatever I say. They tie him up, they get close, and he's screaming and yelling, let him go. they won't let him go, and they can't hear. That's how they got through but Jason, who came later, and the Argonauts, had a different plan. They knew about the sirens. They knew about the fact that it was dangerous. So what Jason did was hired a guy named Orpheus who could play the lyre like no one else in the world. And when they came close to the island, Jason had Orpheus play a more beautiful song. That's what Wesley's trying to get at. If there can be a more beautiful song in us about Jesus than about sin, then that's going to fix a lot of things. 
Instead of trying to put wax in our ears and discipline ourselves to stay away from those things, could we maybe get a greater, more beautiful song about what it means to be a follower of Jesus? That would, one of my professors said, ruin us for sin. Ruin us. So I always think of play louder, Orpheus. Play louder. Play a more beautiful song. So his, his view on all this is why it brought him to this position. So I'm going to give you his theological influences because the number one thing is this. His definition of sin. He knows the different terms. Hamartia, parabasis. Uh, he, he knows the terms. But here's Wesley's definition of sin. A willful transgression of the known law. And you can hear Jeremy Taylor in here. You know, you can hear Jeremy Taylor's purity of intention. You can hear, you can hear Thomas Akempis, the heart. It's a religion of the heart. You can hear Scorgal, that there's a power. So his, he called this sin properly understood. A willful transgression of the known law. Wesley does not believe that human frailty or ignorance or failure is sin. Sin's a theological concept. It's an action or reaction to God. It isn't that you, ha- you, you forgot somebody's name or you said something stupid and you didn't know it would be stupid. Mm-hmm. Or you hurt somebody's feelings and you didn't know you were hurting their feelings. It's, that's ignorance. That's human limitation. Wesley wants to bring it back to willful. Liz? <laughs> I gotta hide my face. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds like behavior though. You know, it's not hitting motive as you're talking oh, about. Oh, it's willful. Well, the motive is willfulness. Willful I can willfully do something wrong, but my motive maybe. How do we define willful? It, it's conscious, it's willful, it's known to back up, let me back up a look. 1 John 5, 4. It's lawlessness. Uh, 3, 4. I'm sorry. 3, 4. It's a willful transgression against the known law. It's lawlessness. Uh, you can't be willful. I mean, if you're going to break the law, it's because you're willfully doing it. Can you be halfway willing? Well, I, th- like, like I spent my whole life not studying anything, and mm-hmm. then suddenly is a yeah, fifty-year-old man, I'm learning things. And That's a good question so. because because I would th- I'm dealing with not, I'm you know dealing with students years ago. Uh, <clears throat> how long have you believed there's a God? Go back to my parents. Okay. How long have you believed that that you had a responsibility to Him, to God? Responsibility. Okay, but I'm just saying when, when you when you had some sense there was a God. Okay, no, not before that that there was some sense of there's a God and you have a responsibility in your life to Him. Yeah, I didn't feel much of a responsibility okay. before that. It's yeah. Okay, I would say again then, if I'm driving a car in Oklahoma, I'll try to do an illustration. I'm driving a car in Oklahoma. I have a responsibility to know the law whether I check it or not. Cop pulls me over and says, you're doing 35 and whatever. I didn't know. Why didn't you know? Didn't look. You didn't look or you didn't take any interest to find out. 
We call that negligence. You can be willfully negligent to where I say, there's a God. I know I have responsibility to God, but I'm not going to look into it. That would be willful negligence. So again, I, 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 Wesley's going to come back to this idea that there's still a willful response here. Again, if a person said, I don't believe there's a God, I don't believe you knocked out, I say, well, be difficult to, to make that argument. But if I believe there's a God and I believe I have responsibility to him, then I would think, and Wesley, I think, would say, you, you and I have a responsibility to figure out what that means. And that not doing it is willful negligence. Yeah. This is my wife's question. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. But it's a good question. Yeah. Did Wesley believe in humans born in sin and the depravity? I'm sorry, what? Did Wesley believe in humans being born in sin? Yes. Depravity? Yeah, depraved. Yeah. So how are these concepts, how are these different concepts like you're talking about? Because I think of the state being born into sin. Mm-hmm. They were all born into sin because of the fall of Adam, mm-hmm. right? And our spirits made alive in Christ. Right. And so then you're are talking about this other distinction, my willful sinning against my known understanding of God's law. Yeah. Well, yeah. Wesley would, we'll get to this. if, it, if two distinctive ideas. I would say it's it maybe a distinction, but its function is this: we're we are born depraved, uh, born whether we want to. Uh, we're born depraved, turned in on ourselves. Uh, Augustine called it in curvas say, "I'm turned in on myself." So that's the original position. Judaism, as well as Christianity referred to a thing called the age of accountability. So at the age of accountability, when a person knows, again, there's a God, and that what I'm doing is not in line with him, that's when they actually sin. They were born into sin, if you will, by the creature. They're not guilty of that. The reformers, Wesley, if a, if a baby dies... Uh, no one would say, well, they're guilty. They're born into sin. When they have the opportunity and the conscious ability to choose, they will turn in on themselves. That's when they become responsible, not before. Now, in the Roman Catholic tradition, if a baby dies, they're still in mortal danger because of this idea of not only born into sin, but a sinner. Where the Reformation, Wesley and others is we're born into this, we turn it on ourselves, but we don't become accountable until we choose. It's responsibility. And this is going to be real important as we move along because, I'll say this, in the Reformed tradition, it's I sin in word, thought, and deed all the time. Tim Keller made a statement. God bless you. I love Tim Keller. Okay, love Tim Keller. But here's where the distinction is. Wesley would say that you must make a willful decision on your own. It's a willful transgression, which you know is wrong. Tim Keller on a tweet said this, I can't preach a sermon or pray a prayer without sinning. That's a fairly ubiquitous understanding of sin then. It must be in everything that I do. I mean, he said that, I can show you. It shocked me. When he said that people that don't understand the Christian tradition and sin don't understand that I can't pray a prayer and I can't preach a sermon without sinning. Wesley would never stand for that. It's a willful 
It's an intention of the heart. Doesn't that turn it more into a self-centered view of salvation? I mean, I'm just even thinking about Tim. I'm like, so? Because so if you, if that's the case, if I can't pray a prayer or preach a sermon without sinning, mm-hmm. I'm still magnifying the fact that I'm saved in Christ. How? Not in my own, my own ability not to ever sin, that his atonement is enough for me. Right. Whether I do sin or I don't want to. Mm-hmm. I don't want to, that to be a reality. But there are times, and it's kind of like, I don't, and I have to look it up, but it's just like the verse about like the willful sin, like knowing sin, and also the sin of omission. Mm-hmm. But I'm not aware of that. Where, where, can you recall where that might be? I will find it. James, James 5 where it says, Him that knoweth to do good and doeth it not to him, it is sin. No, there's something, it's like in Psalms, or, it's in Psalms. It's a, it's a passage in Psalms where it talks about knowing or you're omitting sins, the sins I know mm-hmm. I do and the ones I'm not even aware of. I would, yeah, I would check the translation on that, but I think what you're referring to is Psalm 52. Okay. I think. Let me look here real quick. But um, this is going to, we'll, we're going to talk about Wesley believes in total depravity. So it's not, it's not like he thinks we're just good people. I don't want to sidetrack you. No, no, I, let me just see if I can. Yeah, let me, I'll have to look later. Um, Fifty-one. So anyway, let, we'll talk. We'll talk some more about this. But Wesley's position. No, no, no. This is fine. This is this is why we're here. Wesley's position is that sin, properly understood, is a willful transgression. Now, let me just real quick say why I think he does that. Um, there's a guy that wrote a hymn called uh, "Rock of Ages," Augustus Toplady. And he and Wesley had some difference of opinion. Top Lady was trying to convince people um, of their need of the gospel. So he, he wrote an article in, the, in his uh, magazine and said, let's assume that pers- a person sins once a day and they live to be 80 years old and he factors it out. He said, but that's probably not likely. Let's say they sin once an hour. And then he runs it out for 80 years. But that's probably not true either. He gets it all the way down to that we sin once a second. Now, a couple of things happen, I think, there. Is I think people then, this is my assessment. People, number one, live with a constant sin consciousness. I, I, I'm, a, I'm sinning all the time. And two, I would allege... They don't take it very seriously. You can't take seriously sin if you're doing it every second. You can't. You lose your mind. So I think Wesley is coming at this from that angle to say, can a person understand, hey, I did sin at that moment. It wasn't just me being a human being. It was an actual sin. So we'll, we'll, we'll dig deeper in that promise. And if we don't, we'll come right back to it. So let's, let's go on here. Uh, whoops. So he is, um, here we go. I'll get this. This is uh, just a, a quick thing. He's Anglican by training and commitments. He's Anglican by training. If you're interested, you can still go online and see the 39 articles of religion by the Anglican Church in England, the 39 articles. 
he's Anglican in his training and his commitments. He adheres to the Book of Common Prayer. Uh, you may have heard of that. <clears throat> um, and he is uh, a churchman. He never left the Church of England. They, they, did, they barred him from going in. They, they wouldn't allow him to preach. Uh, but he was unwilling to leave the church because he believed in uh, its ministry. So, <clears throat> so we kind of talked through this last time. Uh-huh. There was the Catholics and there was the, the Church of England. Yes. But today we sort of mentioned the method. Mm-hmm. And I know that there was a separate, the you know the, the other groups that were uh, distractors or whatever. The dissenters. Dissenters. They're called dissenters. Yeah. So the, were the Methodists part of the dissenters or were they part of the Anglican? Well, the Methodists was a, was just an organic thing that happened accidentally. All the revival that begins to happen, Wesley and others begin to put people together in groups to help them grow. And they, the, the people that get put in small groups, because they have a method, they call them Methodists. Wesley never attempted to start a church. Okay, yeah, ever. So the Methodist church we see now. Yes. Is that an offshoot of that? That's a big question. <laughs> okay. I'm no, no, I'm just saying. The Methodist church, the Methodist church in America, it started after Wesley's death and after some final kind of ending they began to organize a church. Okay. And then Wesley sends two bishops, Thomas Cook and Francis Asbury, to America to plant churches and start societies. So it just grows into the Methodist church. Okay, that is but it was never an attempt to start another church. Okay. It was an attempt to renew and vitalize the Church of England. Yeah. Okay. So, okay. So, uh, that he, so he is... He never wanted to leave the church. He never wanted to do... He was trying to revitalize it. He was trying to help it. You know, this is what's happened in the Roman Catholic Church. The Jesuits began as a renewal movement. Francis of Assisi, his group, a renewal movement. They've had these all the time. So the Methodists were that. So he's Anglican by training. Again, 39 articles. When you read the Methodist 25 articles, you'll see much of the, of the uh, Church of England 39 articles. You'll, you'll see lots of similarities. <clears throat> so, now, <clears throat> Wesley, uh, <clears throat> in trying to determine what something is true, <clears throat> worked with our staff here because uh, on this is, man, we live in a day and time when people say something's true because it's true to me. <clears throat> Wesley has an approach of how to determine truth. How do you determine if something is true? And he called it the quadrilateral. Well, back up. He didn't call it that. Albert Outler called it that. But Wesley has a practice, as you look at him in his ministry, of how he decides is something true or not. In the Church of England, they have what you call a trilateral. It's scripture, reason, and tradition. That's how you determine if something's true. <clears throat> Does it line up with the scripture? <clears throat> Does it, <clears throat> I'll read you what I wrote. It's, 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 is that source of truth is scripture. Truth from scripture is understood with reason. You have to have reason to be able to understand it. So, <clears throat> so truth from scripture is understood by reason. <clears throat> There's a better picture of it. 
understood by reason. Truth in Scripture understood is supported by tradition. And truth of Scripture is understood and it lived out by experience. I'll give it to you again. <clears throat> truth from Scripture is understood, or truth is from Scripture. But truth from Scripture is understood with reason. If you use your brain. Truth from Scripture is understood and supported by tradition. And truth from Scripture is lived out by experience. Now, <clears throat> Wesley adds experience. The, the uh, Church of England had their trilateral of Scripture, reason, and tradition. Wesley adds experience <clears throat> to say there has to be something here that we can actually experience in terms of one's life. It's interesting <clears throat> because when people say, well, we just believe the Bible. Well, it's probably <clears throat> an inaccurate statement to say we believe the Bible and we believe <clears throat> that we must employ reason to understand the Bible as best we can. And we want to know by tradition what does the church always believe? Now, Wesley would limit that tradition to the first 400 years of the church. That's where he believed tradition. The tradition was the, was the most pure and the most accurate. The first, what, what, did, the, what did the church cons, consensual councils believe? Nicaea, Chalcedon, Orange, <clears throat> all those different councils. What did they come up? The Apostles' Creed, other things like that. Wesley <clears throat> taught, and others have too, that the first 400 years were the most formative, if you will, uh, if you will, in terms of understanding the Bible. Because that's when these collections of notes <clears throat> came together. Some of that. <clears throat> but, but much of the doctrine and theology is being hammered out. Nicaea is hammering out who is Jesus. You know, fully God, fully man. Chalcedon on the Holy Spirit. The Apostles' Creed. The Didache. All of these things are trying to hammer out what we understand that the Bible teaches. Um, and there's a, there's a whole new movement, has been for some time. Thomas Oden, who here in Oklahoma City and died some years ago. Tom led the charge of going back to the early church, the first 400 years. And Wesley wrote in his journal that the worst thing that ever happened to the church was when Constantine became a Christian. Because it lost its primitive approach to Christ. It became too organized. <clears throat> you know, the church got organized like the, Roman, like the Roman government. Caesar, Pope, the Senate, the Cardinals, <clears throat> the, the, uh, the uh, 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 representatives, uh, these areas in the district governors. And he always thought that, that it was a tragedy because there was no more pure desire to live for Jesus, it got incorporated. So <clears throat> this is it. So if you, if, you, if you want to understand Wesley, you have to understand on the bottom of all this, of his understanding is scripture. He said, I'm a man of one book. Show me that book. I'm a man of one book. He made the comment one time, he said, I'm a reader of many books, but a man of one book. I've talked to our staff here. I think in our culture today, this is going to get real important. 
How do we determine if something's true? Much of our culture begins at experience. This is what I feel, or this is what happened to me. Therefore, it's true. That would certainly be opposite to the way Wesley and other Orthodox Christians would approach things. Uh, Because, come back to this original point, we still believe, um, now, again, we believe that human beings are fallen. They're creating the image of God, but they're fallen. Eugene Peterson makes this great quote when he says, the fall has so affected human beings that our desires and impulses and dreams will take us places not worth going. So the idea that the impulse or the dream or the desire can go unchecked in our culture is one of the reasons that I think the quadrilateral plays a certainly an important part in our lives today. What does the scripture say? How can I make sense of this? What's tradition teaching me? You know, there have been some smart people before us, <laughs> some Christians, 2,000 years of scholarship. What, what, what does tradition tell me? And then what does experience live out? Does that make sense? So when I, you say experience in this context, are you saying like relying on the experience of others who's been through that type of thing or like what I experienced mm-hmm. after searching the scripture, tradition, mm-hmm. and reason? Like, yeah. Go more into what you mean. Yeah, that's a good question. Uh, Wesley would take the idea of experience as not individual but corporate. Okay. What is the experience of God's people? <clears throat> okay. You know, what the, what the scripture says, what tradition has told us, what reason, and then what's the experience of God's people here? It feels a little bit like tradition, but it's the idea of what's the experience of that? <clears throat> you know, a person tells you that, um, uh, you know, they're, they're, they're being led by God in this ministry. And it just crashes and burns. We ask, ask the question, well, is that really something you should have been doing? Because experience doesn't, doesn't wash out there for the people of God. So it's not really individual. It's more, it's, it's more of the idea of the experience of God's people. The experience of God's people is when the Spirit of God leads someone into ministry, there's usually some kind of fruit or some result. Or if God is leading someone or God is working in the, in the life of a church or somewhere, there's an experience that we know generally that God works in. So it, he adds this, and most people say that Wesley is the father of Pentecostal theology. But isn't Pentecostal theology now maybe more more so maybe than what it was focused on the personal experience? I think so. I I I, I say I think Wesley. When people my when I hear experience, I do not think yeah corporate experience. Yeah. I, I think my experience. I think it is more personal or specific to that. Yeah, I, he's he's the father of Pentecostalism. I don't know if he would be agreeing with it. Yeah. I'm not saying he would agree with it. I want to be careful. I'm not saying he would agree, but but he's kind of the father of that to bring that to bear on that. Yeah. Just wanted to throw in too. I'm glad you brought up the spirit. I assume when he said we rely on reason, but that spirit enlightened reason. Oh, I've, absolutely. And, yeah, well, in the scripture, he would rely on the spirit, yeah. reason, tradition, all those. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, Wesley is, 
when you read all of it, his reliance on the Holy Spirit, that's one of the things he brings to the table that's really missing in the Church of England at that time. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. So I just, I just give this because this is really important for our own lives. This is important for us as we think about, okay, how are we going to decide if something's true? We're going to have all kinds of people, all kinds of things happening. How are we going to determine? One of the things that I've noticed, even at a Methodist school, that they flatten this thing out. That experience, reason, tradition, scripture are all equal. It's not an equilateral. It's a quadrilateral. Really, a lot of scholars would say it's scripture and a trilateral. It really is scripture and a trilateral. Um, our friend, um, oh, Dwight, I can't remember now. He was a bishop. Of course, there's several. Anyway, um, I can never, Paul Paul Chilco. He, he likened the trilateral to a uh, wind chime oh. in which the center piece of the wind chime is scripture, and it rattles every, everything else. It makes everything else ring correctly. So a wind chime, it's that centerpiece that's the scripture that makes the sound as it goes around. So that, that's it. Now, uh, we've already talked about this here, um, source of truth from scripture. Oh, I've got to get my PowerPoint slides going here, don't I? So it's the source of truth, truth from scripture understood with reason, Truth from Scripture understood and supported by tradition. Truth from Scripture understood and supported by tradition ought to be lived out by experience. So he has some theological input, his understanding of truth. Uh, If you're going to read Wesley, you're going to realize, again, he says, I'm a man of one book. And... uh, he said, show me that book that shows me the way to heaven and uh, give me that book at all costs. Formative events, <clears throat> Holy Club. Talked a little bit about it, but I want to give you a little more information. The Holy Club <clears throat> was a real formative uh, for him in that Wesley's experience in small groups convinced him that you, you don't grow in the Christian life alone. You, it's, <clears throat> I used to say this as a professor, the Christian life is personal, but it's not private. That's an important distinction. It's personal. It's not private. I would say to my students sometimes, if you decide you're going to live your Christian life by yourself, then you're going to, sh- you're going to lock yourself up to your own ignorance. Because you don't know it all. Nobody does. And so Wesley's experience in the Holy Club brings this formative approach to Christian existence and Christian experience must be lived out in community. And so he is shockingly committed to these matters. And when they got together, they studied the Bible, they prayed. But his small group understanding also, though, they also went to the prisons to preach. So their small group wasn't just let's come together and study the Bible and encourage each other. 
They worked together in ministry outside of that. So they would go to the Newgate prison, right close to Oxford there, and preach. As he develops this kind of mentality of the Holy Club, uh, anybody that participated also in their meetings brought a penny, if you could, for the poor. So they always took up a penny for the poor. So this Holy Club becomes a, a really significant matter. I got to go on. He has, however, um, an experience where he gets an opportunity to leave Oxford and go to Georgia. Uh, George Woodfield had come to Georgia before, right out of Savannah, set up a, an orphanage, come back to England preaching. John and Charles go to Georgia. And John writes in his, his journal, this is how serious he is. He said, perhaps I could learn to live the Christian life more fully if I wasn't in such an easy place like Oxford. So he really went there in many ways to try to get a hold of what he considered to be primitive Christianity. And he wanted to try to reach the Native Americans with the gospel. Long story short is this. On the trip over, now again, this is not in, in Wesley history. This is 1730, uh, 1735. Wesley doesn't really come to a real assurance of salvation till 1738. So he's in this kind of dark period of his life. He's serving, he's working, he's, he's, he's preaching. He has no assurance that he's a Christian. It, it's fascinating, right? It's almost... Well, it's sad. This guy that grew up in a home where his mother taught him, goes to Oxford, he's a priest. He has no assurance that he's saved. So he goes to Georgia. And on the way over, terrible storms break out. He meets a group of people going there to the German uh, colony there outside of, called Moravians. M-O-R-A-V-I-N-S. Moravians. These are German pietists, meaning they are, you're not, they're saved, not saved by baptism or by being born in the church. They, personal decision for Jesus. They're German Moravians. By the way, uh, there's a long history of them in America. Bethlehem, Pennsylvania, settled by the Moravians. Actually, I got to go there because the the oldest continuous bookstore in the world is in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania run by the Moravians. Yeah. Uh, Chapel Hill, uh, settled by Moravians. These people on the boat, Wesley watches them and Wesley writes in his journal, he is scared to death. And he says he's embarrassed that a priest of the Anglican church going to mission would be afraid to die. So he starts talking to these Moravian people and he says to them, are your people not afraid to die? And they go, no, we're not afraid at all. So in the storms, they sing and, and all kinds of stuff. And so when they finally get there, he's been affected by it. He wants to talk to them. And when he gets here, the leader of the Moravian colony named Augustus Spangenberg, first time he meets Wesley, he says this, does the spirit of God witness with your spirit that you're a child of God? And Wesley responds that he knew not how to answer then Spinenberg says this, do you know Jesus Christ? 
Do you know he has saved you? Wesley says, I hope he has died to save me. He only added, do you know yourself? And Wesley says, I do. But then later in that day, he says, but I fear my words were in vain. Now, you know, I, I've wrestled with his life and studied. And it, it's been interesting to me um, that there are people that I've met, maybe you have too, who by, by the way they live at least or the fruit of their life should not have any assurance at all, but do. And other people whose lives are obviously committed to Christ and bearing fruit don't have assurance. A.W. Tozer said it this way. The man or woman who wonders if they might go to hell is very unlikely to do so. There's sort of a, I think Americans have a hard time with this because we have sort of a microwave kind of spirituality. You prayed the prayer, you got baptized, you signed the card. Very little soul work that people do. Wesley was a serious person. And the notion that you could flippantly kind of just talk about salvation was against everything in him. Because he knew, he knew the serious nature of this. And so these Moravians rattle him. And he wants that assurance that they have. He doesn't have it. He stays in Georgia for a while. It's a disaster. He's a high church Anglican with a bunch of frontier, rough and tumble colonists who won't want to put up with his restrictions and regulations. They try to run him out of Dodge. He does some stupid things. He falls in love, quote unquote, with a young lady there named Hopke. And William Abrahams, who's a great Western scholar, says, like every untaught Irishman, and he's Irish, he said he couldn't make himself known to her that he loved her. And she marries another guy. And he's impetuant about that and won't serve her communion. <laughs> because he believes that the man she married is not worthy of her. And she wasn't coming to church. He actually, I don't have enough time, he actually has to leave Georgia to get out of there. But what's happening is, through this series of events, Wesley's own angst about assurance, the Moravian certainty about having assurance, he goes back to England on a ship, a broken man. He is broken. He's in despair. He's failed in what he believed would be the place to find pure religion with the Native Americans. He's failed in a romantic relationship. He's failed in the mission there to get people to line up with, if you will, uh, Church of England practice. And he goes back and he's broken. And in this uh, matter, we'll talk about this next week, Aldersgate, a street in London, becomes the holy grail for John Wesley. 
in the sense that he comes to an understanding of how to be right with God by faith. But I, I don't want you to miss this, that there is this in, somehow in God's providence to bring him to the end of himself. His intellect, he's a brilliant person. Master's degree from Oxford. To bring him to the end of himself in ministry. He's failed. He's blown it. To bring him to the end of himself in his ability to work this out in his own understanding. And he comes, if you will, to the end of himself. And I love um, Psalm 107 in this regard. If you, you never read this, it has a recurring line. They did this, they did this. Then they cried out to the Lord and he heard them. One of them was those who go down to ships and they get in a storm, they reel and they were at their wits end. And they cried out to the Lord and he heard them. And I think that Wesley's at his wits end. He can't figure this out. He can't work it out. He can't discipline it out. And we're talking about a guy who fasted twice a week, who went to the prisons and preached, who was a serious, serious man, who lived his, this is what's fascinating to me. This is how serious he is. John Wesley lived on 32 pounds, sterling pound, a year, all his life. Millions of dollars came through his hands. He wouldn't keep any of it. He determined in college he could live on 28 pounds a year. How much is that today? Well, pound sterling, pound, a pound now today is worth about a dollar and 30 cents. 50 bucks. Yeah. In terms of times of that time, it would have been worth a lot more. Yeah. It would have been a modest. Several, maybe five, six hundred dollars a year. And he never, and he only increased it to 32. Never increased his standard of living, ever. I mean, this is how serious this guy. So when I'm saying he's broken, he's not broken because he's some goofball. He's broken because he's done everything he knows to do and he can't figure it out. And he is at this point where again, we'll come back next week and we'll talk about Aldersgate because it's a really important part of his life. So here's the, here's the point. Uh, I want to encourage you to think about two things, or two, a couple things. One is, what are the books you're reading? Are they helping you to grow spiritually? I want to recommend you take one of these books in the next year and just read it. Take your time. One of these books, they're all still in print, on Kindle, all kinds of things like that. That matter. Second of all, as you think through in your own experience, as you think about working with people, talking to people, to, talk, to think about the quadrilateral. It, it, how am I going to help people determine if something is true by the use of the quadrilateral? Because this is going to be an important matter as our culture continues to be less and less. We're in the post. You know, I don't know if you, you may remember Francis Schaeffer. Francis Schaeffer said in 1976 that we were in a post-Christian America. He said that in 1976. And so this idea of how do we determine truth? 
is going to become more and more. So anyway, great. Hey, I got a couple of questions here. I will work through them, I promise. And uh, we'll, uh, yeah. Which of the books is the most accessible? Um, Someone not used to reading theological books from 1700. Yeah. Yeah. Which one is the shortest? Well, there, none, none, of them are real, none of them are real long. Uh, I, you know, I would say... I, um, I, I, listen, the imitation of John Wesley's mother didn't like the imitation of Christ because she thought that uh, that a Kempis was too sour. He's just too. I, I I would go the life of God and the soul of man. That's that's the one that you. It'd be easy to read. Uh, these guys are ponderous. They they they're they're careful. But I would do that. The life of God and the soul of man. Is I would graphic novel version. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I tell you, there's a couple other books. There's another book called a, little, a, a, a Choice Taste of Honey from the Rock by a guy named Thomas Wilcox. If anybody is discouraged, if anybody gets discouraged, you need them to read a Choice Taste of Honey from the Rock by Thomas Wilcox, or go to Northern Nazarene University and read Wesley's sermon. Satan's devices. It is the best sermon you ever read for anybody that's a serious Christian. I'm not talking about somebody goofing around, just clowning around, trying to figure out, okay, how much can I do and still get away with it? Wesley's sermon on Satan's devices is the most comforting, the most enjoyable sermon I think he ever wrote. It's tremendous. It's, they're all at nnu.edu, Northern Nazarene. But I would go Skurgall, Wilcox reads Wesley's sermon. NNU what? NNU.edu. It's Northern Nazarene University. They have all of Wesley's sermons digitized.